You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Coming up next on SpyCast. Most places have a niche, but I think what's really cool about our content is that everyone likes spy stuff. You have kids, you have adults, you have former intelligence practitioners, you have young college students on first dates, you have everything. It really allows for a lot of creativity in picking who to reach out to with what ideas, and that's a lot of fun for me. Eliza Bran is the Media Relations Manager at the International Spy Museum. So, what's it like to be on point for a museum that specialises in one of the most misunderstood topics on the planet? What's it like to work the intelligence espionage angle with the CNN, BBC World, or a local Fox or NPR affiliate, not to mention the Washington Post, the New York Times, Wired, and Politico? Well, if you listen in, you're about to find out. Before coming to Spy, Eliza worked at a boutique PR firm where she had several museum clients. Prior to that, she studied political science at Washington University in St. Louis, although she grew up around the Washington, D.C. area. In the rest of this episode, Eliza and I discuss pushing herself up the intelligence learning curve, how to pitch spy stories to the media, media requests for commentary on operations or historical context, the difference between paid, owned and earned media and how young Eliza thought spy, quote, the coolest place I had ever seen as a kid, close quotes. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and loved ones. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL Spycast. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006. We are 17 years strong. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So I'm so excited to speak to you, Eliza. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about your role as the media relations manager at the Spy Museum. Some people would say that that's a contradiction in terms media manager but (laughs) anyway tell us a little bit more about your job sure um first off thank you for having me it's so exciting to be here and see you in your natural habitat um yeah so I am the media relations manager and that means that I get to kind of yell from the rooftops everything cool going on at the spy museum whether it's pitching stories about our artifacts or Um, looking at the news and figuring out where intelligence fits in, where we could possibly provide some context to current news. Um, Sometimes putting Andrew forward right here uh, for some opportunities to give that background, sometimes doing so for our executive director, Chris. So it's, it's a really wonderful place to be. I get to work with all of our fabulous resources and, and help other people see how exciting they are. And that's five or six years you've been here now? Six and a half. Six and a half, wow. 
And I understand that you were at the Spy Museum way back when. Can you tell us about the first time you ever visited <laughs> the International Spy Museum? I was at the Spy Museum uh, as a visitor, yes, many years ago. I remember when this institution opened. So I was at camp. Goodness, this is going to um, share my age with your listeners. But I was at sleepaway camp, which I did for many years as a child. And my father actually sent me a letter which we did then because you didn't email at camp. (laughs) (laughs) Technology has changed. Um, But uh, I had received this letter from my dad and it was about other things. And then he sent this article from Parade Magazine, which I don't think we even had a subscription. I don't know where he found that. But it said, when you get back, we'll go. And the article was all about this new organization, this new uh, place that had opened up called the International Spy Museum. Uh, Of course, I am from the D.C. area. I was born in D.C. and I was raised just outside Maryland. And so we we were very excited to check this place out. And I came and it was honestly the coolest place I had ever seen as a kid. And I came from a, a family that liked doing museums, as many kids can be. I wasn't super impressed with high class art, but suddenly coming in and having history come to life the way that this place does it really opened my eyes to what museums can do and what could be cool. And I remember I was on a seven-day trip from Sweetwater, Tennessee. I, re- I remember pieces of my cover, which is kind of embarrassing. And, you Tell know, memory, memory is malleable, <laughs> so maybe it's not accurate. But at the t- I, I remember it so well because it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I've been a fan ever since. I think it's really cool with our museum that... It's one of the few museums where everybody comes and by and large, everybody leaves happy and excited. Like every generation, every age group, every member of the family, because quite often there's museums that you go to with kids and the adults are like, you know, I'm looking forward to sitting down and get a coffee afterwards or the kids are dragged to some art museum and they're like, I don't really care about this stuff. But at the Spy Museum, like, Everybody comes here, everybody enjoys it, everybody leaves happy. Uh, and this is not a sales pitch, this is what we see every day, right? <laughs> it's true, and, and I think it's the most fun when kids drag their parents and the parents think it's going to be a kid's thing and realize during their trip that actually they're having the best time. I, I think that's the greatest victory when you have different generations and different folks come through and realize that, oh, I was forced to come here, but this is... I'm coming back. (laughs) I really like it here. (laughs) So you came here as a kid and now you've worked here for six and a half years. What do you think the magic is? What's the secret sauce? I mean, is it just the content? Is it just because it's on spies and espionage? I I mean, I don't think it is. I think there's something else that's more intangible, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it as someone that was there at the beginning and has been through these past six and a half years. Yeah, I I think the content is what draws people in. So that's a great enticement, but it's not what does it once you get here. I think there's something really special. And this is this speaks to your team the most. The folks who have developed these exhibits and figured out how to create what we refer to offhand as undercover mission, but the the interactives throughout the museum experience. That that makes it all incredible. I mean, we really, we look to find learners where they live, whether it's you love videos, you love audio, you like being in front of the actual artifacts, which not to toot our own horn, but we do have the largest collection of espionage-related artifacts ever placed on public display. That's kind of incredible. So, so whatever avenue it is that inspires you as a museum goer, we really have it. Um, so I think people walk away being uh, excited and shocked by what we have to offer because of the way we show it, because of the way we develop these exhibits. We just understand, I think, the audience where, where they live. And I want to dig into like your favorite exhibit, your favorite artifact, to drill in it into some of those interesting things. But I think before we get there, it's also been some quite interesting time since you've been here. So six and a half years, it was at the old location on F Street in downtown DC. Now we're over by the river uh, and the swanky, beautiful building. But I know some of the staff that were here before the move, they still have 
fond memories of the F Street location, but for people like me and Aaron, we're by the river, we can go to the fish market, <laughs> the building's great. I don't particularly want to be over there. So I know that you have a bit of a soft spot for the old location as well. So just tell us about that transition from when you came on board, when did you find out that they're going to be moving location? Uh, how did you live through that experience? How did it affect you? What were the highs? What were the lows? Um, yeah, help us understand that from your perspective as a media relations manager. It was quite the adventure. So <laughs> I did come on knowing that we would be moving. So okay. that was not a surprise. They didn't take me on and then say, P.S., you have a major project ahead. But I did, I did have time to enjoy the old museum and share about the content there and how that place was set up and what we had going on and um, start truly planning for a major, massive move. When you go to a new building that was purpose-built from the ground up to be a museum after having been in a place that was like five historic buildings stitched together into this maze-like crazy place, I loved it. But it was it was chaos. It was crazy. Um, <laughs> we Again, we love it. But um, it was exciting to have a place that was built to do this, a place that was large enough to fit I don't know, a Berlin tunnel, chunks of the Berlin wall, these larger artifacts that never had a chance to even get into the museum because we just didn't have a large enough space. In addition to that, looking at how we could expand the content was exciting. Uh, not just for me, for everyone on our team, but also for me because that means I get to play with new material. I get to share new stories new artifacts. Our collection tripled in size, I want to say in 2017, but I don't know what time is anymore. So who who knows when that happened? But during my time, uh, the collection tripled. It was unbelievable. Some of these pieces, <laughs> you'd never expect the actual chunk of the U2 spy plane. You have U2 suicide pins and, and just all sorts of crazy stuff, which to me is very exciting. And knowing that we could expand past I think what the regular only human intelligence content was to look at the massant, the imit, the imagery intelligence, all of these other types of intelligence that are massively important and used frequently by um, folks in the intelligence field. So looking at water uh, content, like what's in the water, what's what's on your clothes. If I analyze it, would it be vanilla from cooking cookies yesterday or was that bomb residue? That's really interesting stuff that people don't think of as much as your microphone in a shoe or a whatever <laughs> it might be. Um, so it, it, it's been a really fun transition. Um, but I will say it was, it was a lot of work. 2019 was a, was a big year for us. And I'd say the high was opening it and the low was opening it. And um, <laughs> I say that with the most joy and excitement about it because it was such fun. But Man, I, I wouldn't go back and do it again. <laughs> One and tiring. done. One and done. That was so worth it. I'm so glad it's finished. <laughs> that must have been a lot of pressure, Eliza, when the new museum was opening. I mean, obviously you have a team around you, but ultimately there's this whole new museum opening in D.C., which is a museum town, quite different from most of the museums in D.C., but all that pressure, despite the team is still on you, like um, and the word needs to get out there. We need to be, people need to know about the new location, uh, the press, on TV. Tell us about that experience because that's a lot of pressure a few years into the job. It, it was a lot, but it kept it exciting, I will say. Um, I think, not to bring it back to our content, but, you know, like a good um, intelligence uh, person, you, you have to rise to the pressure that comes. Um, we only were going to open it once, right? So we are so lucky to have this building. We are so lucky to have this content. And it came through a lot of hard work and a lot of um, elbow grease. And you want to make the best of it while it's here, while it's new, while it's hot. And that's really, that's something that's true about media relations in general. I mean, you really have to capitalize on newness when it's new. So to me, it was, we're going to make this work and I can sleep later and that's okay because it's exciting and it's fun. And I get to work with all of these fabulous people, both internally, as well as great reporters from uh, all sorts of areas of, of life. Because again, the Spy Museum, we're 
in art and culture. We're in security in a sense. We are, we're in, our toes are in everything. So it's a fun, creative challenge. And um, yeah, lots of pressure, but in kind of the best way. And tell us about some of the contacts that you have in the media. Like, are there particular organizations or outlets or journalists that you like to work with frequently? I think it's like any other job, right? So you have people who you know well and you like and you think they do a good job. Um, and, and their content is obviously, <laughs> you fit in. <laughs> um, so those people certainly you you work with more than others. But I think part of my job is looking at each individual story that we have. So whether it's um, talking about our programs or our collection itself, the exhibit space, um, anything really, and figuring out who would be most interested in this, um, who writes this sort of thing, what have they written in the past, how do we fit into their interest of these three items, how do we fit that? Is it perfect? Great, that's the person. Maybe we've never spoken before, but that's that's who we should be talking to. So it's a lot of research. It's a lot of um, reading and writing <laughs> and, uh, and trying to figure out who's the best contact and how do we show them that, that we are the best story for them. It's fun. So it sounds very pragmatic then. It's just who's the best fit. It's business-like, it's pragmatic, but of course you do end up with certain connections and people that you particularly enjoy working with. Yeah, I think it's a combination of all of it. So obviously, if there's someone who you know is the right person for it, that's where you start, right? In addition to that, you always want to work with people who are like thoughtful, smart, nice people. <laughs> so I'm never <laughs> going nice to be mad to reach out to someone <laughs> who I know does a good job and is is good to work with. Um yeah, and I think vice versa for them. They want to have the best source for something. Also, no one's mad when that person is nice and good to work with. It's just, it's, it's the working world. That's how it works. <laughs> so, so I know that earlier you said that you get to blow the trumpet on behalf of the museum. So I think it's really interesting some of the outlets that we're talking about here. You know, we're not talking about insignificant outlets. We're talking about the the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, BBC, Fox News, all of the above, and of course, regional and city publications and so forth. Just tell us a little bit more about that spectrum of outlets that you work with. Gosh, everyone. Um, I think what's most important is to figure out who your audience is. And for us, that's you know, everyone. <laughs> most most places have a, a niche, but I think what's really cool about our content is that everyone likes spy stuff. Or everyone cool likes spy stuff, let's be <laughs> honest. Um, of that group, you have kids, you have adults, you have former intelligence practitioners, you have historians, you have young college students on first dates, you, ha you have everything. So, I think it, it really allows for a lot of uh, creativity in picking who to reach out to with what ideas. And, and that's a lot of fun for me. But it, it does mean that, again, you, I, I work with a little bit of everyone. <laughs> so, so bear with me on this question. But recently, uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. So recently, I've been watching The Marvelous Miss Mezzo and, and her mother... Uh, becomes a matchmaker where she's looking at these young women and pairing them with these young men that she thinks will be suitable. So in a way, it almost seems to me when you were talking there, you're almost like a matchmaker. Here's the outlet. Here's the story. So I guess you have to identify if there's a story there to start with. And then you think who in our team could help tell that story. And then after that, you have to think, okay, so where am I matching this up to? So it almost feels a little bit like you're the marvelous Miss Maisel's mother. Uh, is that true? Um, in a bizarre way, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think I do a lot of matchmaking of stories and media folks. I, I think what makes it easier probably than matchmaking actual human beings is that I can mold the story to the reporter a little bit. <laughs> Uh, for the most part, sometimes I can't, 
And then you're working with a fully formed thing and trying to figure out where does that go. Mm. But the most fun stuff is when I just have an amorphous idea and I want to put that out there and, and find a good home for it. And I can do it in different ways. And I figure out what the appropriate avenue, the, the angle is going to be for the right person. So uh, yeah, a matchmaker, <laughs> I'll take it. In the past, journalism was sometimes used as a cover identity for spies. If you go to our webpage at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you will find an artifact from our collection that is related to this week's episode. Delegación Nacional de Prensa, número 324, a small Spanish press pass issued to an Americana working for the Chicago Times. Or was she? The recipient was one of the most incredible intelligence operatives in history. Born into a wealthy Maryland family, Virginia Hall was smart, ambitious, and charismatic. She went to elite schools, spoke several languages, and went to work at the Department of State. Unfortunately, her smarts were trapped within the social strictures of her time, consigning her to unfulfilling desk jobs when she dreamed of being a diplomat. During an assignment in Turkey, she was involved in a serious hunting accident and lost her left leg below the knee, all but guaranteeing that her diplomatic dreams would never come to fruition. We'll pick up the Virginia Hall story in the second interlude later in the show. I wouldn't miss it. She did things during World War II that made her a legend. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. You know, you mentioned their stories, so you need to be able to identify stories. That's not a skill that everybody necessarily has. So is that something that you came to the job with? Like, I've always been able to pick out a good story, or is it something that you've developed, or is is it a little bit of both? It's probably both, I think. Um, That's a great question. I I probably came with most of that. that doesn't mean you can't learn it, though. I think the most important things for someone going into my job is, first off, the understanding of what's going to be sellable, which, again, for us isn't literally sellable in a monetary way, but what's interesting, what's what's sticky, if you will, uh, which is a terrible way to say that. But that, uh, your writing skills, your communication skills, you want to verbally and in written form be able to have good communication uh, with people within and outside of your organization. And um, coordination. I do a lot of logistics, a lot, a lot, a lot. But yeah, and some of that is going to be just regular research and having the smarts to figure out what what's going to work for whom and when. And yeah, and it's, again, for me, a lot of fun, but definitely something you need if you're going to do this job. <laughs> um, and sometimes you'll be, I'll be watching something. Uh, again, I consume a, a lot of news because that is also important for my job. You want to know what's going on, not just in the museum world, but in your local market, in, in the world, really. Um, and for, I guess, us, in national security intelligence, espionage, et cetera. But I remember looking at these uh, these Wired videos. I was fascinated by them. And I thought, we could do that. We'd be great at that. And so I cold emailed them. And I wrote that email for a, gosh, I was workshopping that for a while. But, but it worked out. I mean, they reached back out and they said, yeah, this sounds great. We'd love to chat with Jonna Mendez. Who wouldn't? Chief of, former chief of disguise of the CIA. Uh, and have her do one of these videos. And it was a perfect match. And I saw it. I knew immediately as I was watching these videos exactly how it would look. 
they are incredibly talented. So they did the the heavy lifting, but I, I knew it would be a match where Atlas Obscura's weird and goofy artifact videos and just weird, gross things sometimes, we certainly have content that fits that. So I've had them over because I cold emailed them about something. So it really, you just have to be creative. You have to see it. Uh, and, and that becomes easier when you consume a lot of news and content. Any prospective members of the media? How do they? How do they get in touch with you? <laughs> Should I be putting my email out there? Oh my goodness! <laughs> or, or some generic no, one. I I, uh, I love an email. Um, some folks call. Um, I'll accept that as well. Uh, but yeah, if you have a great idea, and again, I worked on I work on the earned media side. So if you're looking for ad placement, don't eat, don't call me. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not. But we do have folks who. Um, outside of our organization do that. So um, I will not be the right contact, but I could put you in touch with someone, but also don't call me. Um, so yeah, for earned media, always down to, to respond to an email. And just briefly for our listeners, what's earned media? Oh, sure. Um, see, this is good. You have to keep me honest for, <laughs> for folks not in the States. Earned media, uh, the way that media works is it's kind of, you have three sections, I would say. So there's um, earned, owned, and paid. So paid media is, you know, your your advertisements out there. If you see a billboard, you see a, um, a sponsored uh, post somewhere, someone paid for that position. Someone paid for that space placement. Owned media, that's, you know, your own website, your own social media platforms, your blog, uh, perhaps your podcast. I don't know. Uh, that's owned media. So those are all the channels that your own organization, company, et cetera, has, has for themselves. And then earned is this goofy place where I live, where you, you're just doing the legwork. You pitch things, you respond to things. Uh, no money is involved, but also you can't just put something up because it, you don't own it. So you're just doing the, the hopeful pitching to see if someone will cover something. Mm, wow. And I think that's quite interesting, the almost the supply and demand of stories, because it seems like sometimes you're, I know, I know some of, from some of the work that we've done together, it's a response to an event that we have no control over. Uh, but then other times you're pitching ideas like the Wired uh, video, which went on to get millions of views, right? Uh, so what's the balance or does it shift depending on just, weird factors or times of the year? Is there sometimes where the news cycle is quite slow and you get more of a chance to pitch stuff? Do you try to maintain some balance or just walk us through what's going on there? Yeah, it, it just depends day to day. The whole thing is an adventure. Uh, so sometimes of year, I guess there's more of one or the other, but not necessarily. So I, I don't know that it's even seasonally based it sometimes there's news and people reach out. Sometimes there's news and I reach out to them and offer you. <laughs> Some of the things, it's still proactive work on my end. Um, other things, people reach out to me and say, we, we know that you guys are a reputable place that, that has uh, sources who are willing to talk about X, Y, and Z. Who can you connect me with? Uh, and, and so it's, it's just a little bit of everything. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about that transition because uh, the some of the main people that you work with, so it used to be Peter Ernest who unfortunately passed away. Uh, he was our uh, founding executive director and then Chris Costa became our new executive director. And then you worked with Vince for a long time and then this uh, bloody... Scottish guy came along God, and crazy person just showed up and won't go away. It's so, crazy. <laughs> so what was that transition like just for you professionally? Because you're working with it's two particular types of actor or musician or performer. And then you have to pivot to work with two who are different, not different in, in, in a tremendously large sense because they're fulfilling the same role and <laughs> right. there's lots of the same competencies, but it's still a different type of individual that you're working with. So tell us a little bit about that transition for your job as the media relations manager, pitching stories, getting people to talk, those sorts of things. I work very closely with the historian curator as well as the executive director. So the two roles you're really talking about. So it is definitely a transition. Uh, you go from knowing one person's strengths, 
interests, expertise, the way that they do things, and starting from scratch, which is always a learning curve for um, for me as well as the person coming in. But I mean, it's not a bad, I mean, it's been so fun getting to know you and everything that you're good at talking about and everything you bring to the table. It's a totally different vibe from what we had before. Each person brings so much. And so it is, again, a learning curve to figure out what does this person know? What do they, what do they like to talk about? How, what's their style? Um, Are they comfortable in all of these areas? How do we make someone feel more comfortable in the areas that are not as natural, but it, it's fun. It's, it's a nice little challenge. Um, and, and I always miss the old, but I'm always excited about the new. So it's keep, keep the old and get the new friends as well. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's honest, I swear. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about some of the other people that you work with. So you mentioned the executive director and the historian curator role, but it's a deep bench. So tell us a little bit more about some of the other people that you work with. I have the good fortune of getting to work with a lot of different people. I do live in my own silo to some degree, but when I am working with someone, I get to do so very closely. So definitely on our exhibits and programs team uh, teams, uh, I do get to pick people's brains a great deal. And outside of that department, I mean, you also get to work with so many other folks. So we have a fabulous volunteer manager. So if I ever have questions about that or we're doing work to share our volunteer program, I get to work very closely with her. It's really each department brings so much to the table and it's it's a joy to be able to share each story um, and, and get to know each of these departments really, really well. And you also get people reaching out to you who want to work with people on our advisory board, people like Jana Mendez, more so in the past, Oleg Kalugin, those sorts of people. So tell us a little bit more about that, about the people that are not paid employees of the Spy Museum, (laughs) but you're still their handler, or, or they still help you tell the story of the museum or get the museum's message out there? Yes, so everyone comes in with their own kind of uh, background content and and uh, relationship with the museum who's on our advisory board. So we have some who, like Jana, who you mentioned, she's been involved since the founding of the museum, gosh, many, many years ago, 2002. Uh, so she brings like a very specific perspective to this that um, that's really unique. Also, her expertise separately is incredible. But uh, Yeah, so people who come to her, she can speak to us as much as she can speak to her former role uh, at the CIA. But for me, it's mostly trying to figure out who is best equipped based on their expertise to to answer the questions or tell the story that is important to the journalist. And um, it's also my job to make sure that we are somewhat involved. I don't want to be just a handler to be a free uh, publicity resource for every other person who's ever been in intelligence. That's a very large role. I would be working (laughs) full-time, 24 hours a day. That's crazy. But um, usually I I try to make sure that it's someone who's connected in some way to the museum. Uh, Ideally, they'll mention us. It doesn't always happen that way. But the idea is how do we make sure the museum stays connected to our resources? Because we want people to know what we bring to the table and what we're so lucky to, to have at our disposal. And, and um, that's really the people internally and on our advisory board. We, we have so many great resources, so many smart people. And we just want to make sure that it's, it's clear we're, we're happy to share them when appropriate. Um, but we, we do like to keep the museum in it as well. <laughs> so t- tell us a little bit more about how you stay on top of the news. Like, it seems to me that that's, do you wake up every morning and there are particular sources that you go to or do you have to constantly refresh throughout the day or are you one of those people that's on Twitter as well, seeing what's coming up? Or, yeah, help us understand how you just stay on top of that ecosystem. Yeah, I think it's different depending on the day. I mean, I do start off with mostly uh, local news, I'd say, is is the day-to-day. I, I always read, <laughs> shout out to 7.30 DC and Washingtonian and uh, the Washington Post. Uh, it, it's always important to keep your eyeballs peeled, DC is. These are the places that I look uh, look at in the morning to, to get a sense of what's going on here. 
Uh, outside of that, I, I listen to The Daily, the New York Times podcast most mornings. Uh, most mornings, I will say. I used to be better about it, but their COVID content was a bit depressing. So <laughs> I'm not always as consistent as I used to be. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's just figuring out, you know, what's going on in the world and um, where do you go for that content? So for world news, quite frankly, for national news, I st- I look to BBC, I look to uh, NPR I, there are a lot of places that I tend to go for content to get a sense. I also like to go to one, more than one source because you just want to make sure you're confirming details. It's really about making sure that you have a sense of what's going on. And part of it for me is knowing that we live in a very polarized world right now. And I want to have a sense of our full audience, which is everyone. So I'm going to even look at stories, places that I don't, you know, aren't natural fits for where I tend to go because if people go there to read the news, I want to know what they're reading. I want to know what interests them. I want to know what people are excited about, worried about, looking at. Um, so that's that's part of the job as well. That must have been a challenge because, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't, when you came to the Spy Museum, you weren't, a, you weren't a practitioner, you weren't someone that studied this. You were someone that has had to come in and, and learn on the job and get up to speed and you have a really great, great knowledge of, of the field. But the, tell us about that challenge. I mean, imagine going to another field and, okay, now you're the media relations manager and you have to think up of pitches and stories for something that you're working to get up to speed with. So t- tell us a little bit more about that learning process because obviously at the beginning, I'm assuming it was a bit more challenging uh, and now it's much easier now that you've got more content knowledge. But yeah, tell us a little bit about that. That's a, that's a great question. I think anytime you are in an incoming person in a new field, you have to read everything. You have to read, you have to watch, you have to soak up like a sponge. To me, it was talking to our historian at the time a lot about his views on things, what was going on, what's important, talking to other folks in the um, organization to get a sense of, where we fit into this space, um, what our priorities are as well. And of course, reading all sorts of articles. But I will say I've always been interested in this area. So it wasn't like I started from scratch. I mean, compared to a practitioner, I basically I started from scratch. But, uh, but as a layman, there is a reason I was drawn to this organization. And it's because I find the content interesting. And it's because I want to read about it. I want to see it. So it wasn't totally out of left fields. I, I did work at a boutique PR firm in a past life and I had several museum clients and I liked working at a museum. I enjoyed that sort of work and the focus you get from that. But any client you have, you can become sort of bizarrely specialized in. And I had a lung cancer uh, nonprofit that I was working with and I know things about targeted therapies that are very specific. And no, I did not major in cancer research in college, which I don't think you can even do. But you learn on the job, you take it in and you you bring it home. You do your homework. It almost seems to me that it's an advantage not to be a specialist because then you can meet lay people where they are. And sure, some of our audience is people with more specialized knowledge, but the majority don't have specialized knowledge. So, so you have an advantage. Would you see it like that? I would agree in a sense. I think everyone brings something special to the table. So even if you came in with specialized knowledge, you have your own advantage. I come in with my version of an advantage, which is understanding what, again, what regular people understand and what interests them. Uh, I'm not too close to the material, though I guess at this point perhaps I am. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely advantages from whichever vantage you come in at this with. But I I try to be thoughtful about acronyms. I'm not going to come at someone, even if I know them. You know, I guess I have used a couple on this uh, podcast. But I assume that the people who are listening to your podcast are a bit more specialized, um, have some sort of background to take in um, this sort of content, which is different from, we'll do something with kids. A kid's publication, we are very, very simplistic, but not in a talking down to you sort of way. We just use the words that, that help them understand what's going on. And a lot of that is more learning-based rather than espionage hardcore. But yeah, it's just figuring out your audience, where they're at. 
So tell us how you come into media relations PR then. So I know you grew up in Washington. You went to school at the University of Washington in St. Louis. Yeah, all the Washingtons uh, apparently. All the Washingtons. And then you come back to Washington. So tell us how you end up at the Spy Museum, just the, the, the brief version. Sure. The, the short version is, I yeah, as you said, I grew up here. I went to Washington University in St. Louis and got a degree in political science, and I did minors in writing and anthropology. I have a natural interest in a lot of the content that we cover at this museum, and I came out of school looking for something to do, and I was very well suited to doing public relations just based on my personality and my interests, and I found out about it. I did an internship, and I thought, maybe I can, maybe I can do this. I got a job in it. I had some museum clients. I liked doing it. And then this job opened up for my favorite museum. And it's not because I'm paid to say that, but because it's true. And I really, I thought there's no way that this will happen. That would be too absurd. But it did. Even in my interview, I, my current boss, I remember talking to her <laughs> saying, I honestly, I really, I really like this place. You know, let me tell you about my first visit. And I said, you know, I'm not pandering. I'm really, this is earnest. <laughs> I would love to work here. And somehow she didn't think I was too much of a fangirl and, and let me do it. But yeah, that's been my journey. And we didn't have communication. We didn't have a communications major at my school. Um, I wasn't in the business school, but I had a very well-rounded liberal arts education. So it helped me figure out how to think, know how to write all of that stuff, everything you need. But I didn't have a specialized track into public relations. I figured all of that out on the job for the most part, the same way that I feel like I figured out how to talk about intelligence, national security, espionage, et cetera. So you can always do it. Um, just take some elbow grease. Undeterred by being labeled merely a woman and merely a disabled woman at that, Virginia Hall went to work for the French Ambulance Corps early in World War II. After the fall of that country, she fled to Spain and was subsequently accepted into the British Special Operations Executive, or SOE, where she was trained in spying, sabotage and resistance. She returned to France where she would organise networks of agents, help prisoners and downed pilots escape and coordinate supply drops and ambushes of German convoys. The story doesn't end there, though. After once again escaping through Spain after the Germans occupied Vichy, France, this time by trekking over the Pyrenees Mountains on her prosthetic leg called Cuthbert, she joined the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, a forerunner of the CIA. Once again, she went back to France, this time after having her teeth ground down to help her resemble an old peasant woman. Virginia helped support the Allied invasion of France. She went on to join the CIA when it was founded in 1947. For her exploits during the war, she won the Distinguished Service Cross, the Croix de Guerre, and an Order of the British Empire. You can't see her Spanish press pass at this time, but if you come to visit us, you can see many of the other artefacts we have on Virginia Hall. What an incredible woman. So let's dig into some of the more interesting little nuggets of your experience here. So do you have a favorite artifact? Does it change or have you always had a favorite? You know, it shifts sometimes. I will say for a while I have had a favorite that I don't even know if I should say on this podcast. And I, you know, please cut me off. You can edit this out if it <laughs> yeah, comes. Okay. But um, I love the scrotum concealment and I am not embarrassed to say it. I think it's fascinating and I, I think it's fascinating because we so infrequently get to see like a model created. Um, I mean, the scrotum concealment was never used in the field. It didn't go forward. For your listeners, uh, just as some background, this is something that Tony Mendez, who is of Argo fame today, Ben Affleck played him in the movie, um, a very serious <laughs> CIA mind created this idea that you'd be able to have this small radio inside of this concealment that would go over your own body part. So if you were in a bad situation, you'd still have access to that. I think it's brilliant. And the fact that 
The story goes, when he brought it up to his own leadership, they were so embarrassed and horrified. They were like, I don't never want to see that again. It's not going forward. And that was it. But he had created, you have sketches that he developed of this. Serious sketches. I know that sounds ridiculous. But, and, and then the model itself, you so infrequently see that middle, something coming to be versus something that's fully formed. So I think it's fascinating. I feel like a lot of people, when they see that artifact, it becomes this playful thing, you know, it's a joke or haha, the their scrotal uh, concealment device. But uh, what you're saying is that this was an idea and there's a whole backstory about how it came into being. There was a idea and then there was drafts and then it was modelled up just as seriously as anything else that Tony Mendez would do. Right. And it was for serious tradecraft, but... The fact that people find it playful or whatever is by the by. Yeah, I mean, people are always going to laugh about body things. That's natural. But a lot of our artifacts, almost, I guess, every artifact is based in a creative problem-solving equation. So there's real thought that's gone into all of it. People laugh at the rectal toolkit, but you have to think about how did that come to be? They had to think through a lot of questions to make that work, hypothetically, and it's serious. It's you are only supposed to use it if your life is in danger. Otherwise, certainly you would not put that in. So this stuff is very serious. Also, there is a light side to it. You don't want to overthink the the seriousness of it all the time because then everything would be very serious, a hundred percent. But but these are not silly things. They can be silly, but they're not really silly. Mm-hmm. Any others? Is there any that are like a close second or? Uh, Yeah, I really like there is an iron in our Stasi section that has a concealment right where you would be ironing. (laughs) So you can put paper, different intelligence, something in there. No one would know. But what's exciting about it to me, what makes it special is that you can use the iron. The iron is usable. You could plug it in. So if you had paper intelligence and someone figured out that You were not who you said you were. You know, you ended up in a bad situation. You could burn that stuff up. You just plug in the iron and it's toast. That is brilliant to me, you know, and it works. Sometimes you have a thing that doesn't really work in actuality because its main function is something else. But uh, that's, that's cool. I think that's cool. It seems to me that with a lot of our artifacts and exhibits, there's so much ingenuity that goes into quite a lot of them, isn't there? There's not always a playbook for these types of things. It's people thinking on their feet, doing some adaptation to some event. It just seems remarkably creative in many ways. Absolutely. And I think that's why I find the artifacts so interesting in general. Each one is trying to solve a problem. How do we do that in a way that doesn't give away what we're trying to do and and that succeeds in whatever the mission is, whatever we need to catch or capture intelligence-wise? So it's, yeah, it really incredible stuff. I'm really curious to know this, the answer to this next question. What are some of the coolest things you've done or the coolest people you've met? Oh, gosh, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, it's, it's hard to, to determine. I can't say that I've spent a whole lot of time with celebrity. I mean, most of my job is really just doing the heavy lifting of the bitching. <laughs> I have been lucky to meet some folks. Um, from a nerd perspective, the first time I met John Mendez really was thrilling. And it's funny because we work together so frequently now that she would give me crap for probably saying her. <laughs> but once you meet the former chief of disguise for the CIA, that is pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, but, but I'd say Admiral McRaven was very exciting when he came to one of our Webster dinners. That was huge for me. Um, I think he's a very impressive individual. And look, I'd be remiss to say that it wasn't cool having Noah Centineo here last week for the Recruit premiere. I am a huge fan of some of the Netflix chick flicks he has been involved in. Not going to pretend I'm not. That was a lot of fun. Tell us a little bit more about the premieres, because there's been quite a few of them over the years, right? Yes, we've been very lucky to partner with different movie or TV uh, production companies, groups, to promote some of these uh, spy TV shows and movies. And I think we're such a great place to do that sort of thing. Obviously, our content speaks for itself. We have a fabulous theater. Why would you not use it? But it keeps it interesting, you know? This is the lens that our audience knows our material through. And most of the time, it's silly, quite frankly. I mean, Bond is a terrible intelligence person. He gives out his personal name to everyone. 
He's well-known. He drives flashy cars. He is so not the gray man in the background. Nothing about this makes sense to me. In car scenes, which you watch this and you're like, you ruined the whole thing. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But this is how people know intelligence content, you know? This is where people come in and meet us. I think that's quite fascinating, that relationship between fact and fiction, because it reminds me a little bit of the movie Braveheart. Most people's knowledge of 13th century Scotland comes from watching Braveheart. And most people's knowledge of espionage and intelligence comes from popular culture. So we're trying to disabuse them quite often of some of the things that are in popular culture, but we're also saying this is interesting in and of itself and in its own right. So we are walking this fine line between fact and fiction and we have PhD intelligence studies people on staff who are like, that's not factually accurate. Or we have former intelligence officers on staff who are like, that's not factually accurate. But actually, you know, this is where a lot of our audience, this is their entry point. So we need to meet them there and then we need to go on a journey with them to explore that interest and relationship that they have with popular culture while also trying to tell them about things like mass and measurements and signals intelligence which is not particularly sexy on the surface but it's very important (laughs) yeah all all of us dorks do but speak for yourself andrew (laughs) so so yeah i think that that's quite interesting that fact fiction relationship and just as we get to the end now Somebody that wants to go into your field, what advice would you give them? Hmm. I mean, it would depend on their age, where they're at. Um, I would say for those who want to do a communications kind of major, go for it. But it's certainly not required. I think my WashU liberal arts education was thankfully very broad. Um, And of course, my interests led (laughs) what I did, which are related to, of course, this material. So it worked out very nicely. But you can learn on the job. You can learn anything. But what you need to bring to the table before you get started, you have to be a good writer. You have to be. Um, A good communicator, you have to be able to connect with people, have a sense of what they're interested in and what gets them excited. I think I keep saying that, but it's true. I mean, you have to get someone excited enough to want to write about something, to understand other people's viewpoints. Why should this person be excited? Why would their audience be interested in reading this? What's relevant to them? What makes this important now? I mean, these are all the questions that nothing is brilliant, but um, but this is the kind of thinking that you have to do to be able to do this job well. And I think it's quite interesting as well. Like what our listeners don't know is that when you're doing your job, it's not like all of the staff are sitting upstairs just waiting around for you to come to them with <laughs> some some story idea. People are very busy. We've got a very lean staff. Uh, personally speaking, trying to keep 50 plates spinning and then you come along. and Sorry. It's, and there's a, no, no, no. And I, I, I love working with you and this is one of the highlights of the job for me. So just for our listeners to give them some perspective, you're yeah. coming up with these things and sometimes it's the material that you have to work with might not be available or the rug might be pulled from underneath your feet. So you're reacting to quite a fluid environment constantly as well. So that's another challenge for anybody, I guess, that wants to go into this field. Don't, if you want to turn up at this and everything to go like A, B, C, D, all the way through to Z (laughs) at the end of the day, forget about that. Take all the letters, put them in a cocktail shaker. Mm -hmm. It's not stirred, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a kind of, crazy space. I think you're, you do all of the planning that you can possibly do, but you have to manage the environment, which is constantly changing, um, has time constraints, both for internal and external forces. (laughs) Like you just fit in where you can and, and you also have to prioritize. So there are things where I say, you know, got too much. That's okay. We're not going to do it. Great idea. Not meant to be. That's okay. There are other things where I say, you know, as you've probably heard, (laughs) this is really important. This is a moment. I mean, we really need to be on this one and it's a special opportunity to, to do something interesting and unique and that will showcase our talent. So you really have to read your sources and see what you have available. Um, when you are doing 8,000 things, I have to figure out, is it 
important enough? Am I special enough to be the number one thing on that list? Probably not. But um, but figuring out, you know, what's the impact of what we're going to do? Is it massive? Then it maybe we should choose this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I have to be poking people, but but usually it's it's all fun and people are excited to be a part of it. So it helps. That helps. So final question, what would the perfect pitch look like? So say for me, I want to get in touch with you. You said that you can identify a story. You must be able to spot a great pitch at a thousand paces. You must be able to look at something and just go, that is ticking every box that I'm looking for. <laughs> what are those boxes? Yeah, I, I think, uh, so there are some general uh, recommendations I would have. And then there are some things that are just going to be specialized to the person you are pitching. And that I, I will say every time because the, the same pitch is not going to work on a thousand people. Like and it should be or right. job application letter, right? Yeah, I mean, if Sorry. you're writing your cover letter for this position, why do you want to have this job? It's not going to be the same as every, if you send the same letter out to a thousand different organizations, no one is going to hire you because they know, they know that this has been drafted very broadly to fit everything. It, it shouldn't fit everything. So first off, know your audience, research your audience, figure out what does this person write about? What does this person find interesting? And how does it fit into the sort of things that they've been writing about recently? In addition to that, obviously don't write an essay. No one wants to read that. If someone's in interested, they will get in touch with you in response. And then you can provide more information as per what they'd like to see. But do not, oh my gosh, the long emails, no one wants that. But you also, you want to be quick, but you want to have a couple of very specific, unusual details, if you can. Something that, uh, and I guess I'm more thinking of when we have exhibits or artifacts, hypothetically, if you have like an event, that's a very different kind of direction. And of course you do the who, what, where, when, why, which is not thrilling, but everyone does it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, figure out what makes this unique, what's sellable, do it quickly, be concise, but don't be boring. I mean, you should have an opening line that's like kind of, cool and then you get into everything and everything should be short well thanks ever so much this has been a, <laughs> sure. a really fun and fascinating conversation and thank you yeah thanks for having me this has been so much fun Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There is no clip for next week's show, but rather a cryptic clue or two that suggest what the content might be about. Join us next week to unravel the mystery. If you're new to the show, please subscribe to ensure you get your weekly high-level debrief. If you're already a valued member of the SpyCast community, please consider leaving us a five-star review. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com forward slash podcast forward slash SpyCast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at Spy Historian. My podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich, and you can follow her at P-U-B-H-I-S-T-E-R-I-N. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, George Yu, Emily Coletta, Afua Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. Hey all, Rick here. 
At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.